Bonjour. Hi, Canada. Greetings to every one of my 400 affiliates listening. This is the second of a three-part Hillsdale Dialogue on the brand new book by Dr. Wilfred McClay, introduced in the first part of our series. He is, of course, a professor now at Hillsdale College. He's a distinguished teaching fellow at Hillsdale College. He's also the GT and Libby Blankenship Professor of History of Liberty at the University of Oklahoma. He has served for 11 years as a member of the National Council on Humanities. His books include The Masterless, Self and Society in a Modern America, The Student's Guide to U.S. History, and The Brand New Land of Hope, An Invitation to the Great American Story, which has become a 25-part video series at Hillsdale College. Excellent video course offerings, all of which are available at hillsdale.edu. Dr. McClay is joined this hour by Dr. Larry Arn, of, of course, president of Hillsdale College, and by Kyle Mernon, who comes out from behind the curtain. He's the director of online learning and for years has been our go-between with the often irascible and difficult to find Dr. Arn. Kyle has, has been long-suffering and long-serving up in the wilds of Michigan, and we are glad to have him here. Uh, gentlemen, we left off last week, when uh, last hour, when we were talking about the new nation, when Americans actually began to understand themselves as Americans. Can we go back there, Dr. Wilford McClay? It, I'm sure it yeah. appears in Lecture 4. When does that American identity get forward? Because there isn't a lot to do between the Puritans and the Virginians for a couple of uh, decades at least. Well, one of the things uh, that happens is the, the Great Awakening. In the early part of the 18th century, there is a religious revival that sweeps up and down uh, the coast, uh, in, in, uh, the coastal, uh, the coastal British colonies and, and uh, in, in inland, uh, you know, uh, in, in frontier areas. And um, this, this is a profound, it's an evangelical uh, religious revival, uh, spearheaded by people like the British uh, George Whitfield, uh, to some extent Jonathan Edwards, the great uh, Puritan sort of neo-Calvinist uh, theologian, was also a very fine preacher. You know, everybody knows sinners in the hands of an angry God, but he, he actually he had a wider repertoire than that. Uh, and the, these were people who excited a sense of uh, of of the uh, a sort of restoration of the fervency of the religious uh, of the religious convictions that certainly the Puritans and others had brought with them, and this uh, because it was an American experience, it was something that happened. It happened in Georgia. It happened in Philadelphia. It happened in New England. Um, it it reinforced in a very indirect way, but a very palpable way, the sense that uh, that all of us were Americans that we had in common this experience. We all had heard George Whitfield preach. We all had been uh, under the sway of the same set of ideas, and the same uh, sense of, uh, of, of the perhaps falling away from our original calling. Uh, so uh, I, I think that religious revival uh, was very important Do- in... Uh, uh, Implanting an idea of Americanness, Doctor Arn. It took 150 years to form a revolutionary moment in 1776. The late great Judas Clark made us read when I was an undergraduate long ago, as did Harvey Mansfield. Those pamphlets, the committees, of course, yeah. and you you averred to them earlier. How important were these pamphlets in a? It wasn't an illiterate society, but it is not one in which literacy is universal. 
Well, they no. Although it was it, it was very uh, common. I'm I'm sorry. Were you directing it to Dr. Arn? Uh, Go yeah. ahead, Wolf. It was very literacy was very wide and and common. So uh, you know the pamphleteers had wide influence. Of course, we all know about Tom Paine and his influence with common sense and so on. But but yes, these earlier individuals and the committees of correspondence were a a slow tentative way that these independent uh, colonies began to think of themselves as operating in terms of a common cause. Dr. Arne? Yeah, well, it, so just, just remember how radical this is. I, I, I stated Churchill's thesis, but there's never been a time, there, and there can't be, really be another one, where a civilization picks up and goes somewhere else. And they brought with them all the knowledge that was in that civilization, and they didn't bring the aristocracy or the forms with them. Mm-hmm. They didn't even know what they were going to see, and that's uh, you know, this claim that America is the last best hope. It's plausible when you think about the dramatic nature of those facts, and that means that they had 150 years to get used to running their own lives, and that bound them ultimately to one another much more than it bound them to England with its traditional forms and its king and its aristocracy. And England, too, is going the way we're going. But even today, they're not just like us, because they have that history and we have ours, and we have lived together and figured out how to cope with that history. And so it... it, it and when they became a people, that, you know, first of all, what were they? They were, you know, they were... They came over here to escape religious persecution, but to found communities of enforced religious conformity. And it took them a while to figure out that, although they didn't know how big the continent was, it wasn't big enough to do that, <laughs> because in, inside the towns, they'd get to fighting, and they'd go somewhere else, right? And they worked out, finally, that you're going to have to let people worship as they please, which in my understanding and theirs, ultimately theirs, is one of the commandments of Christianity. Yes. So, it, so yeah, this, this experience is is unique, and as I say, it can't really be repeated. Uh, uh, Kyle, if I can ask you a question here, just a technical one. When you're filming Dr. Uh, McClay's 25-part series, I know you occasionally attempt to drop in images uh, that illustrate. It's harder when you're talking about 1600s, early 1600s, all the way through 1776. It gets easier as you get to Matthew Brady and beyond. How difficult yes. is the technical side of this 25-part series? Um, it, it certainly gets easier. We, we probably have about 1,000 images and video clips in, in the series as a whole, and, and we have a lot of great ones from the early American history, and it certainly picks up as you continue in the course. So that's a, one of the 1,000? Yes. Wow. You're not paying them enough, Dr. Arn. Yeah, yeah, he says that too. <laughs> okay, so so uh, I got to ask Dr. McClay when you saw it, have you watched it yet? Uh, I'm not one that likes to watch myself. Have you watched the course? Oh, I don't either. I, I, I after three days, uh, I, I and having my wife watch it first. I watched the trailer, and it's incredible. You know, I, I, look, I, I feel like the guy, the actor who just showed up and read his lines, and then the director creates this magic. Is <laughs> it? I, I, it's not. It's it's it's. I mean, you really are talking this Kyle guy, this mild-mannered guy. He is the Wizard of Oz, you know, um, uh, except when you look 
past the curtain. He's much more handsome and debonair. Oh, now, Dr. Arn's very upset because we've given him two causes to demand a raise. Dr. Arn, uh, you, yeah. you've, you've been in this business of video courses for a while now. The ambition keeps growing. Uh, and I believe it's actually the best of times for serious content. Do you agree with me about that? Yeah, we're, you know, both uh, alarmed and gratified by the response to a lot of things we do right now. And, and they all proceed from the principle that uh, if you get privileged to learn some things in a setting where you can really learn, there's an obligation to share. And so we think that if somebody wants to learn with us, we're going to try to find a way to help them do that. And, you know, we're going to expand to lots of different audiences, homeschoolers, charter. We have these charter schools, and we're going to have more. And we want to help their teachers learn, and we want people like Dr. McClay to be teachers to them. And so, yeah, it, it, America needs a great awakening. And so we want to help fuel it. I'm thinking of my friend, Dr. Ken Williams, who is the chairman of the Orange County Board of Education, often assailed by the left and teachers unions. I can see boards of education going out and mandating that they use land of hope, regardless of what their teacher union controlled state boards of education say, and then be willing to fight for it, Dr. Arn, because you've got to fight against this giant, massive conformity. Well, kudos to him. You know, they they have just approved a Hillsdale College affiliated charter school for Orange County. Oh, and uh, didn't know that. Yeah, and uh, Jeff Barkey, a Hillsdale College parent, and uh, Mark Bookum, whom you and I have known for oh, four yes. years, are uh, movers in that thing, and we are movers in that thing. And and you know, you can. There's a way to find, you know, edu- If human beings remain the same and in essential respects, our argument is they do, then what they need to know and how they learn remains the same. And so it's actually been known for a long time how to run a school and make it successful. And we do that at, you know, in two dozen places now, roughly, and there's going to be more. And there would be even every public school board out there listening this morning, uh, go get Land of Hope, go to Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble, or go watch the video course at Hilltail.edu. And then agendize it and say, I think we ought to go back to teaching history in a way that will form citizens and Land of Hope will do just that. We come back and we talk about slavery next on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues. Originally taped on uh, in February of 2020. Also, our Thanksgiving show. He's joined by Dr. Wilfred, uh, Wilfred McClay of the... Um, University of Oklahoma and also Hillsdale College and the director of online learning at Hillsdale, Kyle Mernon. All things Hillsdale, including this new 25-part course on American history led by Dr. Wilfred McClay, are available at hillsdale.edu. Uh, this is a short segment, five minutes, and I'm going to turn to you, Dr. Arn, because we've spent hours and hours talking about slavery on the Hillsdale Dialogue and on the Cooper Union speech and on all of this but if I can force you just to do a four-minute force march through how did the scourge come, how did we get rid of it, when was it recognized? Well, it came here through the colonial era, that 150 years. And just as a lot of things changed in the opinions of the colonists over that time, the opinions about slavery changed and sharpened. And so, you know, it's just, just think what a remarkable thing the 
the American Revolution is because they could have just said, you know, we're English and the and the king is uh, a predator upon our customs of old. And they didn't say that. They proclaimed that all men are created equal. According to a universal law above any human law, the laws of nature and nature's God, well, uh, you know, that uh, we developed a new view about that, or many of us did develop a new view about that over the subsequent roughly one generation, let's say from 1787 and the Northwest Ordinance until 1820, the Missouri Compromise. It was necessary then, you couldn't just simply forbid slavery in new territory anymore, but you could in 1787 on the motion of Thomas Jefferson. So that shift, right, was a shift away from an opinion that if a thing can talk, it's a human. And uh, that's the classic understanding of what the human is. If it starts talking, in the end, you're going to have to let it vote. And, uh, and so that, that, that's the story and the crisis in America. And slavery was here and embedded. And, you know, I, I, uh, Wilford's written a book about this, and the book is brilliant on these points. I'll add one more point that I think that... Uh, there was an evil in the, the founding generation. They, uh, there was a consensus that slavery is a wrong. But there wasn't an understanding, there wasn't a thought, or there, wasn't, there was no experience to indicate that these people of different race and color were going to live as equal citizens among everybody else. Now, my opinion is not solicited nor needed, but I'm going to give it anyway. Uh, I think the great villain of American history is John C. Calhoun. Because as Dr. Oren has educated me, I want to know if Dr. McClay agrees. Jefferson and every slaveholder understood at the time of the revolution that slavery was wrong. Lincoln brought that out in detail in the Cooper Union speech. It was Calhoun who messed up the potential peaceful resolution of uh, the peculiar institution that was deeply immoral and wrong from the beginning. Do you agree with my theories? Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't target him specifically, exclusively, but, but he makes a good target. And, you know, and, and the interesting thing about Calhoun is that he didn't really start out that way. He started out as a sort of classic uh, Whig politician, you know, a nationalist, very much a nationalist, not a sectionalist. And, but he, like all politicians, you know, gravitated to the sources of his support. I, and I think, you know, slavery j- just became an institution that was uh, uh, so enriching to a very small number of people in a very um, localized part of the country. But this just became too, uh, <clears throat> too much of a, of a cornucopia, economically speaking, for those individuals. For Dr. McClay, though, no, you, you mentioned... Giving, so they started defending it as a positive good, which you don't see at the time of the founding. That you, you mentioned the, real, the Great Awakening. These yeah. are all deeply religious people. I've always thought they yeah. felt compelled by the Bible to justify what they thought was... Uh, it, they, they, mm. Obviously, they have material interest, but they're religious people with a conscience, and they know that it's wrong. Calhoun gave them the door by which they might understand it as not obviously wrong. Well, and you had people like James Henley Thornwell and the other you know, Southern Presbyterian theologians, brilliant men. Eugene Genovese says they were much smarter than the Northern theologians, but uh, who began to draw 
increasingly on the examples of slavery and the, the, uh, the, the even the New Testament sort of indifference to the institution, seemingly uh, uh, the existence of the institution as a as a justification for it. So you have Lincoln in the in the great second inaugural saying, making this point, both sides read the same Bible, both sides worship the same God. And yet, uh, 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 there, there was something, I think, ultimately disingenuous. Oh, you bet, you bet. Hillsdale Dialogue continues after the break. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, part two of three parts on the brand new book by Dr. Wilfred McClay, Land of Hope, the key new American history textbook. A 25-part video series at Hillsdale College as well, hillsdale.edu. We are spending three hours on it. We hope that you will go and watch the video course, get the book, spread it far and wide. We come now to Washington, the unique figure in American history. There are two great figures in American history, Washington and Lincoln, who are just so unique. The first one is Washington, Dr. McClay. It's hard to imagine anyone else pulling this off. It's such a unique combination of someone who will on a horseback lead from the front into the hail of bullets and at the same time retire to Mount Vernon after eight years. It's just impossible to imagine. It's extraordinary. I mean, if you're inclined to see American, the, the existence of the United States of America as a miracle, as divinely sanctioned, George Washington is a place to look. How on earth did we, what did we do to deserve him? He's, he's such a, 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 a surpassingly great man and and of course as everyone knows uh you know the, even at the constitutional convention the way that uh, the presidency this newly empowered presidency which a lot of people were afraid of um the only way it became conceivable to them was <laughs> and acceptable to them was the idea that George Washington was going to be that person. And, uh, and of course, he, uh, he was a, you know, the, the great unifier. Uh, uh, and, and when he was gone, uh, uh, he, he, when he left office, I mean, already the country was starting to, to fall apart along partisan lines. So they, and, uh, but Washington, during his lifetime, had always managed to command the respect of everyone. Uh, and uh, he, he is just a noble figure in the, in, the, in, the, in the deepest sense of the term. And, Dr. Arn, not just Washington, what Dr. McClay just said, uh, a time of giants. You've got not just Washington, but Madison, who writes his inaugural address, Congress's response, and then ghosts Washington's response to Congress. You've got Hamilton, who goes into the what the musical calls the room where it happens with Jefferson, emerges with the great compromise at Save Us the Union. It's actually an extraordinary collection of talent. I don't know if it has a predicate. Yeah. Uh, if you want to see, uh, you know, the power, well, one place where you can see it, if, if you read uh, something that Jefferson wrote in 1774, if I remember the date right, a summary view of the rights of British North America. It's a very complex document, and it, uh, he, he always regarded it as kind of a failure. But read the last paragraph. Because, uh, you know, he was the man who could give voice, right? Uh, it, it goes roughly like this, he says, uh, the last paragraph, he says, Let those flatter, sire, who fear. It is not an American art. Ha! <laughs> 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 That's sort of football war talk. You yeah, know? It is. It, 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 your, yeah. your ministers are servants, he says, you know. 
So, yeah, that's, he's a talent, right? And then Madison, writing the Constitution, who was often the corrector of James Madison, I'm sorry, of Thomas Jefferson, who, you know, said and did various silly things in his life. Uh, and Hamilton, you know, who was kind of, he was sort of, he had, he had the qualities of George Washington and some others. He, he, not quite the character, nobody did, but courage, uh, George Washington could be incredibly restrained and incredibly aggressive, and so should Hamilton. And Hamilton was eloquent and, you know, and tireless, right? So the partnership among those people and John Adams, that produced the American Revolution. And as Wilfred just said, it it really didn't last after the death of, of Washington. They all fell to fighting and founded the party system. And they worked that out, but they had to, in a way, that's a very good, I hadn't thought of it before, but I think Wilford suggested it. Uh, they had to figure out a way to run the country without George Washington. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't easy. <laughs> yeah, we are working yeah. on an exhibit now at the Nixon Library called The President's Club. And on the friendship that evolved at the end of their lives between Adams and Jefferson. But Dr. McClay, they were anything but friends until they were old oh, men yeah. exchanging letters. Yes, and and that's such a. I haven't read Gordon Wood's new book on the on the subject, but that friendship is a sort of inexhaustibly interesting phenomenon, and and how over time uh, enemies uh, can become friends, can become uh, you know, they can draw away from the heat of their particular battles to a love of country and the love of one another that's mediated by love of country, and you know it gets back to the theme that we began with uh, back in the previous hour about how to, to lack, uh, well, let me put it positively, to have a shared narrative, to have a shared story of, of what America is, that's the first step to overcoming the divisions between us, and it's, it's an essential step. You know, if we don't agree in some way about the story, about who we are, um, then we're not going to be able to do great things together, or even minimal things together. Uh, and and, and in, in a time of a national crisis, we're sunk if we don't we don't do better than we're doing now. Well, that first national crisis story. comes along with the first secession crisis, and onto the stage strides Andrew Jackson, who is yeah. if Donald Trump has any predicate, and he really doesn't. It's Andrew Jackson is a great disruptor. And the national crisis is that people are threatening to leave the constitutional deal. How does, where does Jackson come from, Dr. McClay, and what is his response to this crisis? Well, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's from very hard scrabble origins. You know, he's really the first example of what, in a, in a I think, more noble way, elegant way, Lincoln exemplified this ability of, of people from even the most uh, uh, unpropitious circumstances to rise to the highest office in the land. He, he mainly did it through his military exploits, uh, uh, although people do forget that he actually was an elected official, too, before he became president, unlike Trump, who is really had none, none of that and no, no military record either. <clears throat> but, uh, but Jackson was a patriot, uh, and uh, he was a Southerner, uh, he was a slaveholder, but he was also a patriot, and uh, he uh, he did not, in the end, uh, cotton to, if I may put it that way, to, to cotton to the secessionist talk. And so uh, he very firmly 
uh, uh, you know, put, put the kibosh on. I, I believe he threatened, uh, did he not, Dr. Arn, to march down into South Carolina and put them to yeah. the sword? Well, he was a uh, reasonably belligerent. <laughs> <laughs> I like that modifier, reasonably. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, he was, he'd kill you. Yeah, he would. <laughs> he did. <laughs> he did kill people. And uh, so, you know, he and John C. Calhoun are, are you know, there's a great story there. I, I'm glad that Wilfred said the things he did about uh, Calhoun's excellences, which were many, and his tragedy, and the tragedy for the nation, was that he adopted these these scientific principles of of material historical pro, uh, Pseudo. progress. Pseudo scientific. So a new idea, right? Uh, the Declaration of Independence is wrong, right? It helps. So so yes. that's his tragedy. But boy, you know, with Jackson, he, he and Jackson they did things together, right? And they sort of wanted bound up the country and wanted to regard it as one country and the nationalists, both of them. And they fell to fighting, of course, and uh, the nullification crisis was the reason. And uh, there's that famous toast. Wilford will remember the word yes. better than I. Uh, uh, Jackson proposes a toast. Uh, the Union, uh, uh, one and inseparable, something like that, now and forever. And, and Calhoun toasts back, the Union next to our liberties most dear. Yes, and the, exactly. And the liberty he was referring to was the liberty to hang on to their slaves. Yeah. And so the yeah. shadow falls. I believe it's in lecture eight. You call the culture of democracy in the shadow, Dr. McClay. Uh, the, uh, did anyone not know it had to come to blows and not just blows, but 600,000 dead and million wounded? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's a foreordained conclusion. And I try to convey this in the book. If they don't fall for this notion of historical inevitability, I mean, uh, uh, Although, at the same time, I say that uh, if, if there's anything that made the war inevitable, it, 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 you could argue it was the Mexican War, because it opened the, this whole issue of expansion and expansion leading to reopening the question of slavery in the territories, which is where Lincoln drew the line. Um, uh, and and uh, you know, if, we, if, that, if that, that land, that vast expanse of land... Uh, uh, had not become available, and, and thus unsettled the Missouri Compromise, which uh, ended up being completely blown up by uh, Supreme Court, among others. But uh, uh, you know, we wouldn't have have had that problem. Inter- uh, interesting. But, uh, I got to pause here because Doctor Arn and I have spent so much time. Uh, I, I, again, if Napoleon hadn't sold us the purchase, that might be the yeah. case. But even if he hadn't, uh, and we're into the what ifs, Doctor Arn. After you read Lincoln enough you realize someone was going to come along and say that institution cannot endure. Well, that's right. And, you know, this, this particular story is written in the history of our college, the founding history. And Lincoln was looking for a way to get rid of slavery without breaking the Constitution or having a war. And they found that way, and that was partly invented by people here at Hillsdale College, and that was they forbid slavery in the federal territories where the federal government had, they claimed, I think rightly, the power to do, but they would leave it alone in the states, and it would be then, and Lincoln said, in the course of ultimate extinction. And so that's the moment of decision, right, because they were, they were getting the power to implement that policy. They were going to outvote the South on that. 
And then the South was pre- pre- presented with a choice, right? Are they going to go along with that and resign themselves that this institution must ultimately pass away, or are they going to fight? And alas, they chose to fight. And in many of the states where they chose to fight, that was a narrow decision. But it was the decision. When we come back, we'll talk about not only the war, which is dealt with in Land of Hope completely, but also the aftermath, the reconstruction. Don't go anywhere, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue will roll along. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. It is the Hillsdale Dialogue, uh, the conclusion of part two of a three-part series with Dr. Wilfred McClay, Dr. Larry Aaron, the president of Hillsdale College, and Kyle Mernon, the director of online learning at Hillsdale. Uh, all things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu, including a new 25-part course on Dr. McClay's brand new book, Land of Hope, an invitation to the great American story, a great American textbook. I'm so glad we uh, we brought up the Mexican-American War because, Dr. McClay, it gets very little notice. It doesn't really figure much in people's understanding of how we got where we are. But without it, there'd be no California, no Texas, no New Mexico, would there? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And by the way, since we've been talking about Lincoln, I, I want to say a lot of people don't know this, but, but Mexicans regard Lincoln as a great hero. And partly because of his opposition to the Mexican War. <laughs> uh, very interesting, little known. Uh, there are statues of Lincoln all over Mexico. I did not know that. Uh, yeah, isn't that interesting? Why did he uh, oppose the Mexican War, Dr. Ron? You're the Lincoln scholar. Well, he opposed it because he thought it was an aggressive war, and he opposed it because he saw the complications it would make if we got a bunch more territory before we figured out what we're going to do about the slavery thing. And, you know, he's mm-hmm. the context is, uh, you know, Stephen Douglas is gravitating his way toward the idea that we should expand, you know, the whole hemisphere, manifest destiny. And that means that, uh, and he had this kind of federal idea uh, that slavery would be just decided by the local community. And that was, uh, in Lincoln's eyes, the most dangerous doctrine. It actually appealed to Republicans a lot, and uh, because it was, you know, kind of cool. Uh, uh, let let each place decide for itself. And uh, he couldn't sustain that. In excuse me, my voice, I got a croak. Uh, he couldn't sustain that in debate with Lincoln in the Lincoln Douglas debates. But it was a very formidable challenge. Uh, Doctor McClay, uh, I, I want to cover very quickly when Lincoln. My friend Robert O'Brien, the National Security Advisor, sent me a note. He had stopped at the Lincoln Memorial on a walk and had read the second inaugural. I'm going to skip over all of the Civil War. I'm going to skip over 600,000 dead and uh, uh, the, the Eastern Theater, the Western Theater, Lincoln and his generals, all that. I'm sure it's in Land of Hope. But that second inaugural, do you think it is the greatest bit of rhetoric or do you rank the Gettysburg Address ahead of it? Oh, I don't know. That's a tough decision. Uh, I, th- I, I think... I would rate the second inaugural higher because it incorporates in a way that Lincoln came to later in his life, but it incorporates the Judeo-Christian biblical uh, uh, understanding that is is very much a part of the American heritage, as much as our you know doctrines of natural uh, uh, of natural rights and uh, and so on. And it it 
he envisions it's a sort of astounding thing to do for a country still at, at, at war. Uh, but it, it's conciliatory. It's looking ahead to the knitting the back together of the nation, which Lincoln never lost sight of, that that, that was the ultimate. That was the end game. Well, we'll talk Reconstruction next together. week. But I got to ask, Dr. Arndt, if one of them had been lost to history, which one would you have preferred been kept? Uh, yeah, I agree with Wilfred. It, uh, yeah. yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, first of all, it's a beautiful religious slash political poem. And it, it gives us a guide to a lot of our contemporary disputes because of this materialistic view of history. Where, you know, there's a war on everything in the past, everything that's not pure by today's standards, which means nothing will remain. And and uh, Lincoln's, it ends, you know, with charity for all, with malice toward none, let us bind up the nation's wounds. And so, you know, his his attitude, sublimely expressed. Remember, the whole beauty of the thing is, he it is a judgment on its all, on us all. We all did this thing. We're a nation. Mm-hmm. Let us, uh, you know, with liberty, what, uh, every drop of is a beautiful statement of natural justice. If every drop of blood drawn by the lash must now be repaid by another drawn by the sword, still it will be said that the ways of God are righteous altogether. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. I mean, yeah. How, how can you not like yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. No, it's just, it's breathtaking. And I, I, years and years of reading it have not taken any of the luster off of it for me. Do you include the entire text of important um, documents, Doctor? Uh, we got thirty seconds of the break, or or how do you approach that I'm so as glad an editor? You asked about that, because I, I, I do point. I don't include entire text, uh, but I do point frequently in the text towards these primary sources, which I think for using the book for teaching is a help. I want to mention very quickly that we're about to come out with a teacher's guide to Land of Hope which we, the teachers have been clamoring for, and I think it's going to be a huge help. And it will include some primary documents and questions to use in the classroom, uh, in, 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 you know, including things like Northwest Ordinance, oh. uh, you know, things that aren't often taught. Absolutely necessary. Hour number three will be coming. Do not depart from us or go right away to hilltale.edu. And begin watching all 25. We're only up to less than 11, but I hope we've made it the hook. Don't go anywhere, America. The Hillsdale Dialogue is wonderful. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Generalissimo.